It is finally over. The legislative session ended Monday with all of the kind of typical last day goofiness. There was paper airplanes getting thrown. I don't know where it came from. I think Sharbini threw it, just hit him right in the face. Giant rubber band balls getting dropped from maybe dangerous heights. Black Sabbath bass solo. But in spite of all that last day giddiness, lightheartedness, for many lawmakers, this ended up being a bruising conclusion to session. I would say after there came a a time when people were just talking past one another, and that's when it was clear that there wasn't going to be a path. And we have been asking for help and support. When we don't stand up for people, they keep coming for the next person. Please mark the following members absent. Armagost, Bockenfeld, Bottoms, Bradfield. By now, probably a lot of lawmakers have gotten as far away from the Capitol as they possibly can. Whether that's Thornton or Cozumel. (laughs) Yeah, they're off on vacation. Maybe they're sleeping in a little bit. But we're here to tell you how it all went down. This is Purplish from CPR News, a podcast about Colorado politics, policy, and for the final time. Hopefully. The 2023 legislative session. I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm Andrew Kenny. State lawmakers wrapped up their work at around 10 p.m. Monday night, which was yesterday as we record, with just actually a couple hours to spare before their midnight deadline. That concludes the business of the first regular session of the 74th General Assembly. And I move that the Senate adjourn CNA And like almost every end of session, that final day was a whirlwind. Yep with the fate of some of the year's biggest policies up in the air until the very end. Uh, Day 121, the trauma healing begins. Um, For those of you that I was with just a few short hours ago, if you're operating a little slower than normal this morning, there are still leftover refreshments in my office. And from what I saw, those leftover refreshments in the majority leader's office was uh, boozy seltzers that staff and lawmakers were cracking open after the last gavel was gaveled. Or in a lot of cases earlier. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I saw people drinking whiskey around the Capitol starting on like Saturday, three days, two days before the thing ended. Anyway, before that last gavel gaveled, lots of dramatic things happened on the final days. Among that was Governor Jared Polis's huge land use reform that we've talked so much about ended up dying a really surprising death. Talk about that more later. Also, Democrats' big property tax Tabor refunds package did make it across the finish line, but not without some theatrical and dramatic and controversial action on the floor. On this episode, we'll unravel what went down in those hectic final hours Mm -hmm. and look back at the entire session. What passed and what failed often came down to a power struggle, not just between Democrats and Republicans, but between the legislature's progressive Democrats, who really gained strength in the House this year, versus some of their more moderate colleagues in the Senate. It was also a legislative session that tested the limits of Governor Polis's influence. He began his second term with a policy agenda arguably even more ambitious than his first term. 
And he ended the session with a very public defeat handed to him by Democratic majorities in the legislature. A lot to unwind. We are recording this on a little sleep and at least for me, a lot of caffeine. So that should balance out just fine, minus a little twitchy eye. So <laughs> let's just get into it. I won't ask about that. <laughs> Andy, I think we have to start this with land use or we have to start it with the end of land use, at least for this session. Yeah, and it definitely came to an end. You know, so to give some background, the land use bill, of course, is Governor Jared Pulse's big proposal that would have forced cities to allow greater residential density in more neighborhoods. And going into the final day, we had a House-Senate showdown where the House had passed a pretty expansive version of the bill that wasn't too different from what Polis wanted. On the other hand, the Senate version lost all the controversial aspects, stripped out the preemption of local control, stripped out the mandatory upzoning, and really just focused on like, hey, let's do some planning. And so you had these two different versions going into the last day. Yeah, and just to explain, I mean, it's it's common for each chamber to have a different version of a bill, mm -hmm. but when that does happen, that difference has to be resolved. Mm -hmm. And so one chamber can say, okay, we'll go with your version. You know, they can just accept the other chamber's version, or they can meet to have a conference committee. And I was expecting that, that there would be this conference committee and they may negotiate a compromise. And then when that happens, it has to go back to the respective chambers for a final vote. Yeah, I was expecting either a compromise version or maybe they just pass the stripped down Senate version. They would do something to get this across the line. Mm -hmm. But we just kept waiting and waiting. At one point, they told us there was going to be a conference committee. But then we waited some more and... Right around dinner time, the sponsor, Senate Majority Leader Dominic Moreno, who we heard from earlier, announced that they did not have the votes. They were not going to do anything more with the bill. They were going to let it die on the calendar that night. I would say after there came a, a time when people were just talking past one another, and that's when it was clear that there wasn't going to be a path. I would say it's not unusual for big policies to take multiple sessions to get through. And yeah. you can pick out examples on any policy topic that you want. Mm -hmm. And Paul has even pointed this out, looking at full-day kindergarten, preschool, multiple years, lots of revisions. And at this post-legislative session press conference with the governor and Democratic leaders, he did not sound like in any way that he's giving up on this policy. Yeah, I don't think anybody underestimated the opposition. Changing the status quo is hard. And, and the first step is acknowledging that the status quo isn't working. Uh, I think that there's a growing consensus that that's the case. Uh, people that simply can't afford to live in our great state. And changing things is never easy. And it doesn't happen all at once. Yeah, it doesn't happen all at once, but nothing happened this session. And I would say that while it does take years for big stuff to get done, they usually walk out of each session with something to show for it. Really unusual, I think, to see a Polis priority bill not get anywhere this year. I guess that can be true. But I have also seen big policies not come to fruition at all yeah. um, as well. But I yeah. think to your point that this was the governor's top, top priority and what he talked about, you know, I think we mentioned it at the beginning of Purplish this season after his State of the State address, that how much of that speech was focused on this singular issue. Yeah, so we will see, did this change the conversation? Does this get some momentum going? I don't know. I kind of get the feeling that they hoped to get something big done quick here, coming out of a big election year. 
I think it might be harder to get preemption done next year when they've got an election year and when you've got suburban senators who are worried about getting recalled or getting kicked out of office if they start a revolt among their elected officials and homeowners. But maybe they'll go back to the drawing board and start a real big campaign to convince Colorado that this is what we need. So, Andy, you drew the short straw, I guess, this year, and you ended up covering the two final biggest policy questions of the session. So we've talked about land use, of course, and then there was also the Democrats' big tax plan. Yeah, apparently I'm some kind of masochistic nerd because I ended up covering the most complicated things. (laughs) But with property taxes, that came at the end of session as a bit of a curveball. We knew there was a lot of talk all throughout the last few months that Democrats were going to do something to try to slow down the current rise in property taxes. But we didn't know what it was going to be until last week. I mean, obviously, people are seeing their property valuations come up. Mm -hmm. This is after multiple years of a just red hot housing market and people can see some really, really big increases in their property tax bills. Yeah, I got my little postcard. It said my valuation in Arvada was up like 33%, which translates to a 33% jump in property taxes. And I think that's pretty well in line with what people are seeing in big cities. And even in more rural areas, it's above 20 a lot of the time. This brings us back to this late in the session proposal. What do Democrats want to do here and how do they want to help people with this situation? Well, how much detail do you want? (laughs) How much time do we have? (laughs) Um, Infinite. It's a podcast. No worries. I'm sure our listeners will bear with us through this. Our editor's going to kill us if we're like, hey, let's keep going. (laughs) I know it is complicated, but go through some of the key points here. It's a plan that has to go to voters, first of all. The first thing you have to understand is that Democrats didn't actually change anything about property taxes. What they have done is presented voters with a plan and asked those voters to sign off on the plan in November. And this plan, it is quite a bit more complicated than just cutting the tax rate. Yeah, maybe the best way to do it is to uh, break it down into a little three-part explainer. You want to have a TED Talk? (laughs) Yeah, three parts. Let's do it. (laughs) All right. So part one is that, yes, you cut property tax rates statewide for 10 years, which means, you know, people still will probably pay higher tax bills because the value is going up but not as much more. You're putting a little bit of a break on that. Mm -hmm. But then there's this catch where, guess what property taxes pay for? It's schools and local governments, so they're affected by this, which brings us to part two. The state digs into its own pockets and gives some money to schools and local governments to make up for the effects of the property tax cut on them. Okay, so since these schools and local governments won't have as much property tax revenue coming in, the state is going to backfill some of that money. How does the state have this kind of extra money to backfill? Ah, that's where you get to the really controversial part, part three. Democrats want to take money that would otherwise be refunded to taxpayers, okay? So everybody gets their Tabor refunds some years, right? That's when the government grows beyond the limit it's constitutionally allowed to. Yeah, right. The upshot is that there's this big pot of money that says Tabor refunds on it. And what Democrats are proposing here is take some money out of that and instead of refunding it, give it to the schools and local governments to make up for the effects of the property tax cut. So smaller refunds and smaller property tax bills. This is the part that, as you mentioned, is controversial and has Republicans especially furious because they view it as Democrats using property tax relief, right? Mm Because people don't want to have these huge property tax increases, which makes sense. So they see this as a Trojan horse to gut the taxpayers' bill of rights. 
and essentially deprive people of money that would normally be returned to them. This measure over the next 10 years would take away more and more potential Tabor refunds until eventually it's affecting more than $2 billion a year of Tabor surplus, which would have otherwise been refunded to voters and taxpayers. Long-term change that really cuts into Tabor refunds. But there's more. If you think Republicans are mad about those long-term changes, there's also this whole other part where Democrats want to make some big changes in the short term, too. And this is an entirely separate bill Mm -hmm. that says if voters agree to the property tax proposal, Mm -hmm. next year's Tabor refund checks will be much larger for most people. That's right. Much larger for most people and smaller for wealthier people. But only if this tax plan passes. And only for next year. And the Republicans I talked to said that this idea of flattening out Tabor refunds, okay, might be okay, except that they see it as a bribe to get people to approve the property tax measure. Hey, buy into this big plan that changes Tabor and property taxes over a decade, and you will most likely get a bigger check next year. Here's how Republican Minority Leader Mike Lynch described it. If you vote for Proposition HH, you suddenly will get a check in the mail. Uh, That is just not a clean way of playing this. And actually, I heard from some Democrats, too, that they thought this was kind of sketchy. You know, they didn't think it was a great process. But a lot of Democratic leaders and the governor have defended this decision to link these issues, saying, look, they're related and it makes sense. We're, We're tweaking policy and this is how it turned out. Yeah, Democrats say they're trying to build a package that benefits lots of different groups. On the one hand, property owners get relief. On the other hand, equaling out Tabor refunds gives some relief to people who may not own property. Uh, And that, you know, this is just how you build a big policy package. You can't just take out all the most popular elements of a policy proposal and expect it to pass on the ballot. So yes, part of this is we want this to be part of the property tax reduction package. This all really came to a head in the House on Monday night, final day of session. Mm -hmm. Republicans in the House had decided they couldn't stop the bill. Couldn't stop the property tax stuff. They were opposed to the policy and how these things are all linked together. They just decided to leave the chamber. So (laughs) they walked out of the House in protest. Yeah, I was over in the Senate dealing with the land use mess at the time. Uh, What was that actually like when they left? Well, they had planned to do it earlier in the day, and they wanted to do it when the property tax bill was up for this final vote. And that's mm-hmm. a recorded vote in the House. You press the green button for yes, the red button for no. So right before that was going to happen, they just stood up and, you know, single file, headed out of the chamber, walked down through the rotunda, walked out of the Capitol onto the West Steps, and stood out there and, and did a press conference. We've been silenced all we can be silenced, and they just keep doing it especially at the last minute when they bring bills that were originated just this week. You know, and it it is a big scheme that the governor waited till the last minutes of session to pull this sort of big legislation. And so what, they just never came back? Were they just sitting outside the whole time? I don't know where they were the whole time, but yes, they did not come back. And, you know, you might have thought House Democrats would be like, oh, okay, sure, good riddance, no problem. Bye, girl. Yeah, but they were upset. They viewed this as a dereliction of duty. Lawmakers are sent, they are elected to the Capitol to vote on bills. And you could hear the emotion in House Speaker Julie McCluskey's voice when the final vote on this property tax bill was called. Please mark the following members absent. Armagost, Bockenfeld, Bottoms, Bradfield, Bradley, 
Catlin, DeGraff. Just really quickly for the audience, when lawmakers are off the floor, if there's a unique circumstance, that will be an excused vote. So this is much different to be marked absent. And if you think back to the opening day of session, some Republicans on that first day wanted to break with tradition and put forward their own Republican candidate for speaker. And instead, Minority Leader Lynch and others defended McCluskey and voted for her to try to maintain precedent. Felt different on the last day when you get to this moment where Republicans aren't even in the room and have broken precedent. It really does say something about the chamber and Mm. how people feel about the work that they're doing, at least in that moment. I did talk to plenty of Republicans who felt like the chamber was run well and they did have some wins this session. And we'll talk about that later. But you were at the press conference after the session with House Republicans. How did they explain this decision not to vote on the bill? Well, Minority Leader Lynch said, sure, didn't change the results, but... We, we made a statement. We see this happen all the time in democracy. We see it around Denver when we see protests out our window all the time. Uh, we, we were out of tools. They had used all of their tools on us, and we, uh, we used all of our tools of simply protesting by walking out. So what we accomplished is um, we made a statement that we're, that we're not going to... We're not going to participate in what we believe is really bad legislation that did not have any proper stakeholding to it. Essentially, Lynch is saying this walkout got more attention. Yeah, that's right. It was a way to make a statement when they didn't have any other power. There was also one other set of tensions that really came to the head in the final hours of the session, and that was between Democrats and Democrats. When we started thinking about our end-of-session coverage and what would be the important things to highlight and analyze, we knew we'd want to talk about the split between House Democrats and Senate Democrats. Both chambers are heavily Democratic at this point. There's a supermajority in the House and almost one in the Senate for Democrats. But the political orientation of the Democrats in each chamber is pretty different. In the House, you have a lot more new members and progressive lawmakers. And those members think voters have given Colorado a mandate to move more strongly to the left, Mm -hmm. enact progressive policies, and as they've said, enact big structural changes. They were proposing things this year like an assault weapons ban, allowing cities to enact rent control, rent stabilization, allowing cities to set up supervised use sites for drug users, a study of a single-payer healthcare system. Some of those things didn't get through the House. Yeah. That's what happened with the statewide assault weapons ban that failed in its first House committee. Mm-hmm. But all those other examples and other measures, too, cleared the House. Uh-huh. And then more moderate Democrats in the Senate joined Republicans to strike them down. I actually, towards the end of session, started hearing that the Senate had a nickname because of how many of the House bills were dying in the Senate. That nickname came from Democratic Representative Brianna Tatone. Now, I would say she's not necessarily in this group of progressive Democrats in the House, but Tatone came up with this pretty cutting nickname for the other chamber. Well, the Senate and the House have a uh, healthy rivalry between the chambers, and of course the House is in a green room, and the Senate is in a red room. And so when we're poking fun at the Senate, I came up with this phrase, the Red Room of Doom. It just rolls off the tongue. The Red Room of Doom. I actually heard that so many times that it seemed like it had always been the name of the Senate. 
but apparently not. Never heard it before. Just to explain it, the wallpaper and the carpet in the ceiling and the Senate are all very red, so that's pretty good. When I started hearing Red Room of Doom, I didn't expect to find the origin of that phrase. <laughs> you know, I won't tell you the reporting that, that went into it, but... <laughs> We got two to tone. And so I will say Democrats obviously passed a lot of bills that Republicans did not support, especially on guns and abortion. But I do think the more moderate Senate probably did help calm and ease some tensions between Republicans and Democrats. And I talked to Republican Senator Perry Will, who was the first person to tone told that joke to. Well, they're calling this a red room of doom. <laughs> That's, you know, we haven't killed that many bills, but some some of the bills that need to go away went away, yes. So Republicans may have thought of it was hilarious, but progressives were really frustrated by this phenomenon. Like you were saying, they believe they have a mandate and it's time to move left. And basically that not just the Senate, but specifically the leadership of their party is using the Senate to get in the way of these bills. They're not a fan of the Red Room of Doom. I think it's because of the Senate. I think it's just leadership in general. I think it's the governor. I think, you know, um, I feel like Democrats historically have really very much operated on a fear-based model. If we do too much, we're going to lose the majority. And I think that's just such, that's so detrimental to actually being able to legislate and govern well. That's Representative Lorena Garcia. She just fundamentally believes that voters want to see Democrats do things that are bigger and bolder, and it didn't happen this session. And I know, Andy, we both heard that from plenty of other members as well. Yeah, the Just Cause Eviction Protection Bill, that was a great hope for progressives after everything else died. That also ran out of time on like the second to last day of session. That was really upsetting, even to some members of the Senate Democratic Caucus, too. That dynamic was occurring throughout the session, and I talked to the Senate Majority Leader, Dominic Moreno, about it. He said, look, it's normal for policies to change throughout the process and for there to be different views within a political party. Yes, we have a historic majority. It doesn't mean that we have a super majority of progressive members. Uh, it means that everyone votes their own conscience in their own district. Um, and that's kind of the what you see play out during the legislative session. There was still a progressive critique, though, that Senate leadership could have done more to help these bills through the process. But regardless... These Democratic divisions weren't just between the House and the Senate. We also saw on the last day some real divides way out in the open between House Democrats in particular, among that caucus specifically. Yes, this happened just after Republicans walked out of the House floor, which yep. we talked about earlier. Democrats quickly convened a caucus meeting. Like a meeting among themselves? Yes. So they left the House floor. At first, it was focused on policy updates because the land use bill had just failed. So the sponsors talked about why that was mm -hmm. and kind of tried to rally the caucus. People were upset. Yeah, cheer them up. Yes. And, you know, it was emotional for the main sponsors. But then this meeting turned into something different, and it became a chance for some members to talk about how unhappy they were with the House Speaker, Julie McCluskey, and how she had led the chamber during the session. Yeah, it's something that had been simmering among Democrats throughout the last few months. We saw, you know, Representative Elizabeth Epps tweeting publicly about concerns about leadership. Yes. And in this meeting, it wasn't just Epps. Representative Leslie Harrod talked about how unsupported and unprotected some members of the caucus felt, especially black women. Both Epps and Harrod are members of the Black Caucus. And we have been asking for help and support. 
When we don't stand up for people, they keep coming for the next person. When we don't shut it down at the beginning, it grows. Herod and others pointed to things like being attacked for missing a vote on a resolution that was honoring police officers. They said they were falsely accused of boycotting the resolution as a protest, which they said they did not do. And that they just weren't supported enough by leadership when that happened? Yes, that was their concern. That's how they felt. And other Democrats, not just the Black Caucus, said they're concerned about various things throughout session, how some Republicans tried to attach anti-trans amendments to a resolution about the Equal Rights Amendment, how another member called Democrats fascists after they cut off debate over a package of gun bills. And I think the gist of this, and again, it's not the entire Democratic House caucus, but from a, a certain portion of them, the gist of this is they feel that their Democratic leaders are giving too much leeway to certain Republicans in the House. Republicans the next day basically said that some of what was said about them was, quote, unprofessional and that they had just been trying to have good, thorough debates, according to them, throughout the session. Uh, among Democrats, what, what did they say McCluskey should do? Did people defend her? Yes. I mean, first, I would say McCluskey did respond to some of these incidents that lawmakers brought up. She made a statement about that police resolution, about those rumors. Yeah, she did that at the time. Not immediately, but yes, she did do that. She criticized the Republican who made the fascist comment. Mm -hmm. But some Democrats, like we said, are unhappy and they feel like it felt forced at times mm -hmm. and that those responses weren't strong enough. She did have people who praised her leadership and how she's managed such a complex calendar. I mean, a huge volume of bills, yeah. uh, a very diverse caucus. And they said she's just done an amazing job. And McCluskey did acknowledge that communication within the caucus has not been great. I will lean in. I will do more. This place, this institution means everything to me. And when I fail, I fail. I am as human as everyone else here. You know, it's interesting. Just a couple years ago at the end of session, I was sitting in a Republican caucus meeting where unhappy members actually tried unsuccessfully to oust their leader, the late Hugh McKean, because they thought he hadn't been forceful enough against Democrats. So it is kind of a mirror image situation. But it feels significant to see the majority caucus have these kinds of divides. It's a time when normally they might be celebrating. They didn't get everything, but they got a lot done. But instead, they're running into some of the problems that I think comes when you are a supermajority. People said McCluskey doesn't have an enviable job when she came in just because it is such a big caucus. But I would say no one was talking about ousting McCluskey. I think a lot of lawmakers are frustrated. And you're right. They had some huge wins. They passed so many bills and a lot of bipartisan bills. And I think that came across, too. I mean, lawmakers, a lot of them do feel very happy with what they've accomplished. But I think they're also in a tough spot on a lot of other issues, too. Well, listen, that's all we've got time for today on Purplish, but we actually have this whole other thing called a website where you can read <laughs> it and imagine me saying these things to you. It's CPR.org. We've done a ton of coverage on what happened with different bills, the biggest bills to pass. Please go check it out. Go read up. As always, we welcome your comments and questions. Our email address is purplish at CPR.org. That's it for this episode and this season. Purplish is a production of member-supported Colorado Public Radio. Learn about becoming a member and join today at CPR.org. 
I'm Benta Berkland. And I'm still Andrew Kenny. This episode was produced by Shane Rumsey and edited by Megan Verlee. We're wrapping up our legislative season, but good news, there will be an election this fall. (laughs) So if you aren't already a subscriber, become one now so you don't miss us when we come back. And if you're enjoying Purplish, please recommend us to your friends. This is Purplish from CPR News. All right. <laughs>